0: In the mid-1800s in the United States, it probably didn't uh, look like uh, the Lord was gonna do anything at the time about slavery. Um, He seemed silent uh, as it uh, was a plague on the nation. Uh, But there was a a little uh, woman, Uh, she was under five feet tall. Um, Her name was Harriet. Uh, She was the seventh child of a prominent Congregationalist minister. Uh, And she became a spiritual giant in her day uh, and this is Harriet uh, in her older age. Um, uh, she saw the horror of slavery up close and personal when her father uh, became the president of Lane Seminary in 1832. Uh, uh, what she saw uh, in Cincinnati moved her to compassion and uh, to asking uh, the Lord, what, what can I do uh, as, as a woman to, to deal with slavery? She began to write uh, for local newspapers, uh, articles uh, about slavery, Uh, And and the need to abolish it. Uh, And she did that for several years. And then she eventually got married. And in 1850, her husband moved her uh, to Brunswick, Maine, uh, where he he got a job as a professor. uh, And uh, she, at that time, uh, began to understand what God wanted to do with her abilities With writing. 1843, uh, she used her writing ability to compose a book titled Sketches of Scenes and Characters Among the Descendants of the Pilgrims. Uh, Long title, uh, but many people read it and enjoyed it. Uh, And she continued to to write and realized that her writing ability is something that she could be used for the furtherance of, of God and pushing back the evil of slavery. While she was uh, living in uh, in Maine or in um, in uh, Maryland, or it was in Maine, um, she began to write a a series of uh, articles for the National Era, which was an anti-slavery paper in Washington, D.C. These 40 installments uh, eventually became a book. Uh, The book is probably one that you're familiar with. It's called Uncle Tom's What? Cabin. Uh, Harriet. What was her name? Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, You guys are well-educated. And uh, she she wrote that book. I don't know if you've read the book. Uh, By the time the Civil War broke out, April 12th, 1861, that fictional book had sold a million copies, Uh, astronomical uh, amount of books sold at the time. And the book was uh, designed uh, to showcase uh, what was going on uh, and how we needed to to deal with slavery uh, and give dignity and compassion toward those who were slaves. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, Uncle Tom is uh, the the slave who's the main character in the book. Um, There's another servant uh, in the book, uh, uh, Eliza along with her husband George. And then there's an antagonist that everybody pretty much knows, uh, Simon Legree, uh, became uh, kind of known in Americana as uh, being a greedy, uh, brutal man. Uh, but that that book was used so profoundly that when, uh, in the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln uh, met her, met Harriet, in 1863, and this is what he said, and I quote: "So you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. Amazing, isn't it? So if you are a little woman, or a tall woman, or anywhere in between, and you think..." What could I do to deal with some of the social issues facing our culture today? I can't do anything. Uh, She did. Uh, And believe me, she was not liked uh, by the culture, especially in the South. Uh, There was a lot of enemies that wrote against her uh, to try to denounce her. Um, And unfortunately, that whole term, Uncle Tom, has become a derogatory term in our culture. Um, But you you should understand that the book had a profound spiritual impact. Because Uncle Tom, if you study the book, uh, became a Christ type. Uh, of how to how to endure suffering so it's a interesting read if you have not read it uh, probably one to get familiar with because it shows what a Christian can do in this case it was a Christian young woman can do with the gifts God gave her to deal with the evils that face society Um, bravery on her part so God can use you is the point long before Harriet hit this theme there was another young woman of Jewish descent her name Esther, uh, who looked at her situation that God had put her as queen of uh, Persia, uh, unbeknownst to the king, uh, that she was Jewish, uh, and God is going to take her power and her position, uh, to push back the, the, the genocide, which is facing her people. One, one woman with bravery. And it's going to step into the gap. And we learn much from her as we study uh, the book about what she did. Uh, You must stop and ask yourself, if they were to write a book about me later, uh, what would the chapters look like? Would I be seen as brave for God and doing great things? we know the story that uh, Haman, the number two man in command of Persia under her husband, proposed to get rid of all the Jews. I mean, to wipe them all out because he didn't like one Jew named Mordecai. That was her cousin. Uh, and so uh, she's in this position to deliver her people and she steps forth in bravery to do it. What you're going to find in chapter six is what I would call the most ironic reversal uh, in, in, in the Old Testament narrative, like in the entire Old Testament. Just when you thought, That evil was was advancing and going this way, God reverses things in a spectacular way and makes them head in a righteous way, which is applicable to our day and age. Just when you thought evil looks like it's triumphing nonstop, God then can come in and through one person's actions, turn things around completely. That's this story. Chapter 6. It's like a hinge chapter. I mean, it's like a, a, the door turns on chapter six. It's so amazing what goes on in this chapter. So I want to study the great reversals that we see here, understanding that, that God's going to give you your reversal. Believe it, that if you are brave like Harriet and take on the issues in your family, in your culture, et cetera, God can use you in ways that you cannot even comprehend. So we wanna study about great reversals that God orchestrates by looking at this in a structural way as we've done, by looking at verse one, which is what I would call the rule, the rule. Verse one tells us that uh, during that night, the king could not sleep because remember, they just had this dinner party that his wife threw between, were you here last week? Yeah. Remember what we talked about? Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. Uh, for those that weren't here, remember she threw this dinner party and it was for Haman and her husband and that's it. And Haman thought, I'm in like Flynn. This is awesome. The queen loves me. So he's a prideful, arrogant politician who wants to wipe out the Jews, doesn't realize she's a Jew. So that night, and she never told her husband exactly what she wants. She just wanted a second dinner party. And so we read, during that night, you know, after they had the dinner party, uh, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. This is really interesting. Have you ever had insomnia? (laughs) You know, isn't it terrible? You know, you go to bed and your mate's sitting there. They're totally out like a light. And you're just, you're just sitting there staring at the ceiling. It It's happened to me many times. I get like, I don't do a lot of things on Saturday night because I got to get ready for Sunday morning. But there's, I learned the, my lesson the hard way. If I would go out and do a lot of things on Saturday night socially, typically I'd come home and get a second wind. You know, two o'clock, 3.30, I'm staring at the ceiling thinking, I got to preach. I can't look like a zombie. So if you, if you are awake at night and, and as you get older, you tend not to sleep as much. Have you noticed this? Isn't it true? It's like, I need less sleep. So that means you can just work more. Uh, so if you come by my house at 2 a.m. and I'm gardening, you'll realize what has happened. But but the guy can't sleep. He can't sleep. Now, he, he now if you can't sleep, you can take some things to help you sleep, correct? Like melatonin. Melatonin. Excellent. Um, it works well. There's a lot of things that you can take. I've, I've, I've seen them on the, at the... At, at the At the uh, pharmacy, so his his remedy for I can't sleep is bring me the political records of what's happened within my empire. That's exciting reading. That's like his version of melatonin. So it says that he 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 gave an order, which means his aides were up at night, right? So they hear him. He wants the records. They bring the records in, and it says that he wanted those records read to him. Now the Hebrew word here to read uh, it's the word kara, uh, but it's a participle. So since it's a part it means they didn't just read one little section. They read and they read and they read and they read. Um, what would be a really boring book to bring you in the middle of the night to like put you to sleep? You know what I'm saying? Maybe a philosophy book, something heavy duty. How about the, the Federal Register? <laughs> that would be exciting. Or how about some kind of political uh, standard operating procedure manual or something at your office. It's like droning on and on as your wife reads it to you, you know, put, totally puts you out. So it would, it, he's listening to this. I mean, imagine the boring nature of it. Um, sir, uh, 500 chariots were purchased two years ago by the defense department. Uh, there was 1,000 shields we had to destroy because uh, uh, they were compromised by battle fatigue. Oh, and the acquisition's office purchased six tons of papyrus for the construction of new scrolls for the Department of the Treasury, and on and on and on. Exhilarating reading? No, not quite. Super boring. Now, here's, here's a theological observation. Do you think that after that first dinner party, he was awake in the middle of the night by accident? No. No, he wasn't awake by accident. Nothing's by accident. If there's a God in the cosmos, there's no such thing as accidents and chance. He's awake because God Almighty made him stay awake. I mean, think about it. Uh, Do things in your life just happen? No, no. God plans these things. So think about it. Uh, Abraham, he's gonna sacrifice his son based on God's uh, desire. But then when God uh, reveals himself to him, uh, do you think he just happened to see a ram caught in a thicket? Who put the ram there? God did. Um, Think about the Philistines. They're putting pressure on King Saul on his rear flank uh, as he's just about to close in on David. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, he's about to get David, who he can't stand. And all of a sudden, the Philistines approach uh, from a a flank that's not covered. So he has to pull his forces off of David and go after the Philistines. You think that just happened? Who sent the Philistines? God. God. I could go on all day. I'll share a couple more with you uh, because we have limited time. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think that he just happened to have a disturbing dream that really bothered him that no sorcerer in his kingdom could interpret? No. God gave him this dream so that he could then bring in a Jewish young man, Daniel, to interpret the dream. Uh, on and on. Uh, King Darius uh, just happened to have insomnia uh, after he had Daniel, uh, an innocent Jewish man, uh, 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 thrown into a, uh, a prison cell, uh, a den full of hungry lions. Sound familiar? It's exactly what you see in the book of, of Esther. They're gonna, they want to kill an innocent Jewish man, Mordecai. Same thing in Daniel's day. You think Daniel just happened to wind up in the in the den? No, God put him there why so that when he is seen to be alive the next day and the king who had insomnia comes rushing down uh, and is like Daniel are you are you okay Yeah, i'm doing great the lions were not hungry and they take him out you read the story and what happens a reversal happens the people that threw daniel in there the politicians what happens they get thrown in it's it's like eye for eye tooth for tooth they what goes around comes around. And so uh, I just remind you that uh, jaw-dropping reversals that God brings are not by accident. And so the guy is a, a awake at night, not by accident. God wants him to bump into some information or what we might call in our culture, a data point and use that data point to do great things. That's the first section. Verse 2 is what I call the revelation from his reading. Verse 2, it was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning uh, Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, so they're like bodyguards to the palace, that they had sought to lay hands on King Arasherer. So, that's just a euphemistic way of saying they wanted to assassinate him. They wanted a coup d'etat. They wanted to overthrow the king. And Mordecai, who happens to work in some kind of legal capacity at the gate, catches wind of what they're doing. Remember the story, if you were here? He told, you know, the king, his king's people, the king's people such search out the information. They eventually find that it's true. They then execute these two guys on gallows. Uh, but, but that was the end of the story. That was the revelation. So you think that they just happened to be reading the section of that boring political document that recounted this coup d'etat, this potential? no. Now God's like, I want to make sure that this politician, this king gets the right information that I want him to read that will then spur him to take action, which I can then use to further righteousness. That's how God rolls. What's the remedy uh, of the fact that, uh, uh, that they found this information? Because um, if you think about it, men will forget what you do. They'll for- you ever done something great and everybody just forgot who you were? And what you did, like you, you put yourself in a, in a situation that's potentially dangerous or harmful to your career, and then everybody moved on it, but then they forgot that you're the person that was pivotal. That's what happened to Mordecai. Uh, but God doesn't forget you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says, for God is not unjust to forget your work, which means that one day God will reward you. He either rewards in the here and now, or when you see him face to face, but he will reward He's going to reward Mordecai. Uh, in verse 3, we have what I call the remedy. So, if you study the Persians uh, by reading Herodotus, uh, the, the great, the, well, really the first historian uh, and one of the greatest historians, so he writes in, in his book, The Histories, about the battles between uh, the Persians. Uh, who are known as the people who create slavery, because that's what they've done to the Jews, uh, against the Greek city-states who are like the free men. And it's the battle between them, and, uh, and it covers the 5th century, which it covers the time of King Xerxes that we're dealing with here. But if you read Herodotus, what he tells you is, and I'll just cut to the quick so you don't have to read the whole thing. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 85 of the histories, and in chapter 9, verse 107, what it tells you is, when people would do great things for King Xerxes, he would reward them like on the spot. Like there was one man uh, who divulged the fact that they were trying to to kill Xerxes' brother. And so he made him the governor over what is now, uh, back then it was Cilicia, but it was like on on the south coast of what is now modern day Turkey. He's like the governor of all of the coastal parts of Turkey. That's a primo job. Why? Because he he divulged a possible, uh, murder attempt on one of the King's family members. So when the King gets this information, notice what he says in verse three, the King said to his aides in the middle of the night, and you can just see him popping up out of bed when he hears this thing, what honor or dignity has been stowed on Mordecai for this? And the King's, they're standing there. Um, uh, nothing. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. Uh, what's going to happen is that fact they didn't do anything is going to set up the righteous reversal, which is going to be absolutely amazing. It's going to be like poetic justice, which leads us from the remedy to, well, the request. So when you get to verses four to five, we read the request, which says this. So the King said, uh, who's in the court. I hear somebody out in the court right now of, of it's, it's like the break of dawn. He hears somebody out there now, Haman, had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. <laughs> Don't you find this ironic? Do you <laughs> this guy has been up all you know night wondering, you know, I can't sleep. Let me read some of the political. Oh, huh? Oh, there was somebody that tried to kill me. Oh, no one rewarded Mordecai. And about the time he's wondering, how should we bless this guy who's in the court at break of dawn? Because he just, remember all night he was building What? Gallows to impale Mordecai. So Haman's coming to bring death, and the king's thinking life. You say what? I mean? Or Lachaim, if you're Hebrew. So it's totally ironic. See, what it's like our culture. The culture breeds death to things, right? Destruction, chaos. And God's looking down, going, No, I'm going to use a little woman like Harriet to bring life. Or I'm going to use a young woman like Esther to bring life. God's always thinking life. The devil's thinking chaos. And so do you think it was by accident Haman shows up at the break of dawn when no one's in the court? No, he, he can hear him. Hey, there's somebody here early. Who's that? Haman. Number two man in the empire. The king's thinking, perfect. I can pick his brain to find out how we should bless this guy. It, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is what I call the request. It's, it's a request, all right. So when he's coming, Heman's coming to uh, ask permission to impale Mordecai. He wants to vaporize him. And Xerxes wants to venerate him. You see the irony? It's unbelievable. So in verses 6 to 11, the heart of the passage is what I would call the reversal. It's the big reversal. And when you see a reversal that God brings into your life because you were courageous, you will never forget it. And you will tell... Your children and grandchildren, that was the hand of God. This is the reversal. Uh, verse six, Haman came into the king and said to him, This is funny. What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Interesting question. Uh, what is to be done for the man that the king desires to honor? Uh, that question in, instantly causes Haman to think for himself, what, What's he thinking? He's talking. You're not supposed to talk in church, did you? Now, he, he's, he's talking about me. Have you, have you ever known a prideful person? Have you? None in our church. You, you mean a prideful? What do they do a lot? They talk about themselves. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that, I did that. And you're thinking at a dinner party, like the whole conversation was about them. They, they never asked you one thing about you or your kids or whatever. It's just like they are consumed with themselves. This, this is Haman. He thinks, I, I, I just went to the dinner party with the queen, the king, and me. No one else was invited. Uh, and, and so he, he hears this thing and he's thinking, he, he's, 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 talking, he's talking about me. Uh, so Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? What arrogance. So pride uh, keeps you from having self-awareness have you ever run into anybody who is just not self-aware? I have. And it's kind of sad. I mean, because they'll, you know, you you'll look at them and you're like, you, you need to see a counselor because you don't really understand what you're really like. Uh, maybe it's your mother-in-law. Maybe it's too personal. Maybe it's your father. Maybe it's your your daughter, your son, or somebody that you work with and you're like, they just don't see what their problem is. That's Haman. Pride totally detaches him from re- the reality. He's a hateful man. He's, he's a, he's genocidal in character and he's completely detached from who he is. So this strutting peacock is what I would call him. This is what he says in verse seven. This is so good. It doesn't get any, if you say the Bible's boring as I've told you before, you have not analyzed it. This is so juicy. You can see him with a big old grin on his face. Oh, what should be done to the man that the king desires to honor? Haman says, "That's what he says there." Uh, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback. This is good. Through the city square and proclaim before him as you're walking, quote, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Over and over again, he has to chant that. He goes, I can't wait to be on the horse, wearing the king's clothes, wearing, riding on the king's horse. They're going to put a crown on the king's horse's head, which the Persians like to do. Uh, everything so that he's riding through town and someone's pulling the horse in front of him and screaming that, thus it shall be done. He's thinking, this is gonna be awesome. This is my moment. You know, people that don't walk with God do not understand that God can only put up with your sin for so long. And then eventually comes the big reversal. So this anti-Semite who hates the Jews, who thinks he's going to wipe them all out, he's, he's not gonna hear what he thinks he's gonna hear when God moves, verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, oh, hey, great idea. did you suggest it to me? I'm adding to the text, of course. Um, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for who? Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew. Do you watch cartoons? What? Yeah, I have grandkids, you know. I've turned them on to Looney Tunes, Pink Panther, you know, all those good ones. Roadrunner. Yeah, oh, they love the Roadrunner. You yeah. know, it's like when the eyeballs pop out and spin in space. Now, that that you could put that in here, it's like when he do this for not you but Mordecai the Jew. Do you see the reversal, the righteous reversal? It, it's unbelievable. And he said, "I want you to you. It, I want you to lead the horse." It's unbelievable. If you left church today thinking that was really boring, were you even listening? It's when God moves. It's juicy. It's great. It's awesome. And so he 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 says, "I want you to glorify." Mordecai, the wicked man was all about his self-glorification, his exaltation, and now he's going to be tasting degradation and humiliation. Why? He's got to lead the horse. He's got to lead the horse. And what's he got to say as he leads the horse? What's he got to say? He's got to scream as he leads the horse of his enemy. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. He has to say that over and over and over again. What's that sound like in Hebrew? It goes like this. He had to scream this over and over again. He had to say that over and over again. Don't you you ever had gravel in your mouth? Sand? It must've been like that every time. He's like, that's the Jew I can't stand. And God's like, no, that's a Jew I love. And I'm going to protect him, and you're going to chant his greatness as you walk through the streets pulling his horse that's the king's horse. So w- when, when you want to go against God's people, God put a, well, there's a blessing and a curse in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Go read it. The Abrahamic covenant, God says, I will bless those. You know it? I will bless, speaking of Israel, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. It's a very dangerous thing to attack the people that God chose. Now, we know the church has been brought in. That's a whole other theological discussion to be God's people. But God protects his people. He protects his people. Uh, do you know who Hassan Bitmetz is or was? Um, I was watching uh, a couple of months ago. He was a member of the Turkish parliament for the Islamist uh, Saadet party. Uh, and on December, back in December of 2023, uh, he was at the podium in, a, in, a, in the parliament, screaming and yelling uh, after the attack against the Jews in October. Uh, uh, he was screaming and yelling curses against Israel. Did you see what happened? He, had, he finished his speech, had a heart attack, and hit the stage. And a couple of days later, it passed away. And you're like, you're looking at that, you're going, it, it is true. As you read in Hebrews 9, 14, that says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're going to attack that, which God says, do not attack either in this life or the next life, there's a price to pay. God protects his people, whether it's Israel, or the church, God says, I'm going to move in profound ways to protect. So God's like, I'm going to deflate Haman's pride uh, through two parties, two dinner parties. And in between those dinner parties, I'm going to do something that will bring his pride down to the lowest possible ebb. I'm going to make him pull the horse of the Jew he hates. It's the great reversal. I don't know what you're doing for dinner tonight, but if you would like to read Isaiah 59, read the whole chapter. Because the whole chapter is about God brings reversals eventually. Verse two, I'll just read you a little bit of it. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. So he does not hear your hands. They're defiled with blood. Your fingers are full of iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. It says in verse 13, you transgress and deny the Lord. You turn away from God. You seek oppression and revolt. You conceive in and utter from your heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, etc." That's the prophet Isaiah saying, God, I, God says, I see your sin and your evil. And then it says, God looks around for deliverance and can't find anybody to deliver. So then God says, my own arm will bring deliverance. But then he adds in verse 18, according to their deeds. So he, God will repay wrath to his adversaries, re- recompense to his enemies. He will bring it in due time. It either comes in the here and now as, as it did for Haman, uh, or it comes in the hereafter, um, Why does he do this? It says in verse 19 of Isaiah 59, he does this so that they will fear the name of the Lord. See, God brings judgment so that they will fear him. You can fear him either reverentially because he's my Lord and savior, or I can fear him because I made the wrong decision. And now I stand accused of my sin. I don't know about you, but I would wanna get ready to stand before God one day. The only way to get ready is to know Christ. And the only way to get to know Christ is a simple act of faith of Lord save me. He redeemed sinners, even a Haman type. But Haman did rejected God. We see his ruination at the close of the chapter, verses 12 to 14. Says in verse 12, Mordecai then returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. No kidding. Where did uh, Mordecai go? That's not a trick question. I ask easy questions. So where'd he go? He went back to work. He went back to work. Now, when you read the story and you think about it, Mordecai was a class act, isn't he? He's a, he's a really class act because as he's riding around on this horse, never once does the scripture say he was gloating over it. You're like, look at me, look what's happened. <laughs> Nothing, he's totally quiet. Why? Because he's a classy man. He's a godly man. He's awestruck, I'm sure as he's on that horse, that God put him on that horse. Remember, they prayed for three days about this. He sees the hand of God moving. So even when God brings the reversal, uh, he's not cocky and arrogant about it. He's a humble man. And then when he, he's through with that whole horse ride around town, what's he do? He, he goes back to work. Uh, this is good news for us because it's instructional because it tells us when God brings a reversal through your courage, it's not about you. It's about him. And you just need to get back to work doing what he called you to do. Amen. Give him the praise, not you, and just continue to do. What did, what did uh, Haman do? He goes back home. <laughs> To talk to who? His lovely wife uh, and his friends. Uh, it says in verse 13, and Canaan recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that happened to him. Translated into our vernacular, I'm a victim. I've been victimized. Somehow this Jew turned things against me. I'm a victim. What is he really? He's a victimizer. See, those in our culture who do sinful things and then they're called on the carpet for their sinful things, they're the first to scream, I'm a victim. No, no, God sees that you're a victimizer. He's gonna deal with, he's gonna deal with them. He, uh, he, he should have taken a hard look at his life and asked himself, how did this really happen? But he, but he didn't. And so then his wife, his wise man, and Zerush's wife said to him, this is really interesting what they tell him, uh, they say, if Mordecai before him or uh, you uh, has begun to fall, if he's of Jewish origin, uh, we got news. <laughs> What's the news? You're not gonna overcome him. You get, this is coming from his wife. Honey, marriage is over because <laughs> you're over. Now, think about this. What did they know? They knew that the Jews were captured by the Babylonians in 586 BC. They destroyed their country, hauled them off into captivity into Babylon. They knew that they, they, their country overthrew the Babylonian empire with Cyrus the Great, 539 BC. Uh, so they knew for 70 years the Jews were in captivity, but they did quite well. Then they knew that they, they overthrew the Babylonians, and now they're the superpower. But the Jews continue to do good under their, their empire, like Mordecai. He's doing well. And so they know for the 60 years that they've been under their rule, plus the 70 years under Babylonian rule, that the Jews have flourished, that there's something going on here. Babylonians didn't wipe them out. Persians didn't wipe them out. And so what do they tell them? Uh, we're connecting the data points. Uh, we don't think that you're gonna make it on this one because there's something going on behind the scenes here. That'd be God. Now, what's interesting is one more ironic thing happens. Verse 14. While they were talking, the king's eunuchs arrives, (laughs) knock at the door, Uh, hello, Uh, yeah, we're here to to get Haman for the dinner party, number two. Do you think he wanted to go to that dinner party? Uh, Well, probably not, because the last one didn't turn out too great. And now he's like, another dinner party? He's gotta go. Boy, hopefully you're here next week, because we're gonna talk about, (laughs) remember I told you the guy last week, he was wondering like, what happens next? Well, you could read ahead. Uh, but we're gonna talk about the dinner party as we get to the next part. But as you think about all of this, I'll leave you with two things. Number one, if you're a, a person who doesn't know God and you're like Haman, that you just reject the things of God and you're prideful and arrogant and you don't have self-awareness and you don't see your sin, um, well, God will work miraculously in your life to wake you up. And when he wakes you up, might you embrace him in faith. And if you are a person like Mordecai, uh, I'm to give you some counsel. Don't interpret the silence in your life as if God has forgotten you. He has not. He's going to use you in a profound way. He's quietly working behind the scenes of your life to bring around a reversal that's going to bring a big smile to your face when you see his hand move. And when he moves, give him the glory. Let's stand and pray. God, we give you the glory for how great you are. Who can even begin to comprehend how you can control all the events in life, all the conversations, everything that goes on on the planet at any given time is all part of your sovereign uh, uh, oversight. Uh, and you are bringing things to, to righteousness and to justice uh, and to the king and the kingdom ultimately. Uh, may we understand that perspective so we have great hope in the present. Use us, even if we feel insignificant, use us to advance the cause of righteousness where you've planted us and to look for you to do it. And in such a way that we will, which can't wait to tell all those around us of your greatness. We give you praise and glory for who you are. We pray for those who don't know you, that they would come to know you as you draw them to yourself in Christ's name. Amen.